0: I'll say, I did not realize that you were married when we (laughs) reached out to you. Emily, our intern, found you, Matt, and then Anna, I found you, and then I reached out to you both, and you're like, oh, actually, (laughs) we're married. Yeah. Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Drake. Usually when a party is locked out of power in Washington, like the Republican Party is today, there's plenty of internal debate about policy, messaging, and who should lead the party next. Think back to this time four years ago. The 2016 post-mortem was practically its own genre, and Democratic senators were jockeying for airtime in public hearings, trying to get that viral campaign launching moment. That hasn't quite been the case for the GOP after the 2020 election. Many Republicans don't acknowledge that the party legitimately lost the presidency, and former President Trump remains both popular within the party and eligible for another term. So introspection, at least publicly, is rare. And the expectation is that if Trump wants the 2024 nomination, it's his. But some Republicans are still jockeying for position to be the next leader of the party. After all, electoral politics are fickle and hard to predict, and it's certainly possible the next presidential nominee of the Republican Party is not Trump. So who else may try to guide the GOP out of the wilderness? And on what platform? Well, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has some ideas. And today, we're going to take a look at his politics, how he shaped Florida, and how he could shape the Republican Party. He's considered to be in the political mold of Trump, but more disciplined. And this week, he closed out a state legislative session full of conservative culture war priorities that may well be geared towards a national audience. To help understand DeSantis's politics, I've asked two local reporters to come on the show. So here with me is state government reporter for the Miami Herald, Ana Ceballos. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Also here with us is Bureau Chief of Politico Florida, Matt Dixon. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So as I mentioned, Florida ended its 2022 legislative session on Monday, and much of what was passed had to do with the country's culture wars. So let me know if I miss any big ones, but some new bills ban abortion after 15 weeks, limit how and when teachers can address race, sexual orientation, and gender identity in schools, and how companies can address race in diversity trainings, penalize companies that transport immigrants who are in the country illegally into Florida, and create a new unit in the Department of State to investigate voting irregularities. What was the impetus for this session's priorities? Ana, kick us off.
1: Sure. I mean, that was a mouthful, right, yeah. of, of culture, <laughs> conservative <laughs> cultural issues. So one thing to keep in mind with our legislature here, you know, it's it's dominated by Republicans. The leader of the party is Governor Ron DeSantis. And a lot of these Legislative items on the wish list were at the request of Governor Ron DeSantis, and you have to think about it as policy that is being looked at through a national lens, right? I mean, there's a lot of the discussions that were being had in committee rooms throughout the 60-day legislative session. We're not very focused on Florida-specific examples, but there was an impetus, if you will, of actions based on what is being talked about at the national level, what is popular among conservatives. And we started seeing these cultural fights brewing in school board meetings, for example, on issues with curriculum since last summer. The State Board of Education here in Florida, at the request of Governor Ron DeSantis, banned anything that had to do with the concept of critical race theory. So then it was also the polarization over the masking issue. So school board meetings became pretty much a battleground. And when the legislature came back for session, it was pretty much reflected on the policy that they were trying to implement statewide.
2: Governor DeSantis is exceptionally good at reading the base, his political base. So on his right, when things like that started percolating up at the local level, when school board you know fights were happening and things like that, those are signals to him. Those are cues to him. And he's really, really good at reading those moments and not only understanding them, but amplifying them. So we have school board fights. All of a sudden, there's this big legislative statewide fight over masks and parental empowerment is as conservatives are now talking about it. And not only does he expand it at the state level, but he has essentially at this point, unfettered access to like Fox News. If he wants to go on Tucker, if he wants to go on Hannity, the governor doesn't have to ask. The governor says, I'm coming on tonight. It's sort of, a you know, works up that way from local level things that he's seeing at a grassroots in, in Florida and things like school boards. And it goes up to the state level where they talk about policy. And, and then all of a sudden he's talking about it on Fox News and getting beamed directly into conservative households across the country. And I think that's something that DeSantis has created here. We haven't had a governor who's had the ability or access to do that and he's he's really used it very well
0: so i think florida isn't usually thought of as being all that ideologically extreme you know it's traditionally been a battleground state it's diverse has lots of transplants when it comes to hot button issues it's traditionally been lenient on abortion restrictions for a Southern state. It has a really visible LGBT community. Even Republicans talk about environmental issues in the state because of the realities of Florida. How did it become a sort of ground zero for these culture wars? Like, do you chalk it all up to Ron DeSantis? Are there other changes going on with the makeup of the Florida electorate? I think it's almost
2: exclusively Ron DeSantis. I mean, you're right. This used to be a purple swing state. It's without question center right now. I'm not even sure if it's it, it fits within the swing state category at this point. And and former Governor Rick Scott, who's you know now a US senator, was here for two terms. He was governor for eight years, very, very conservative, very Republican, but more of in the mold of you know taxes low, small government. He wasn't necessarily at home in the ecosystem of culture wars. Ron DeSantis is. It's where he lives, it's where he eats, it's where he breathes. So and, he, and he's become very popular. So when Governor DeSantis talks about these issues, the base comes with them. They haven't heard a governor, they haven't heard a leader of the Republican Party of Florida talk this way in a very long time, or maybe ever. So I think that has slowly started to edge uh, Florida and its you know, growing Republican base to the right. And the Florida Democratic Party is notoriously a bit of a circular firing squad. The growth of Republicans here have also been aided by a lack of a real opponent.
1: When you talk about Republicans who are advocating for a smaller government, just cutting the red tape, which was pretty much what Rick Scott had just done for the previous eight years. There is definitely a lot of criticism that is coming now from Democrats criticizing all these cultural issues because they are creating more restrictions on businesses. For example, they're saying that Florida is not no longer going to become like the business-friendly state because there's people who are going to be able to sue them over diversity trainings, for example. There's just so many examples of cost-of-action proposals were proposed this year that businesses don't necessarily want.
2: A lot of the cultural issues, the, the broader themes have gotten a lot of national attention, but they did come embedded with, with language and provisions, as Ana just mentioned, that would allow people to sue companies over this.
1: Right. I mean, all the, all the state regulations in terms of curriculum, for example, the parental rights bill. There's new restrictions on the instruction for K-3 through three classrooms on sexual orientation. If a parent happens to disagree with that, they can sue the school district. And there's the same provision for companies on the individual freedom bill that is called uh, in response to the CRT stuff. That also would allow employees to sue their employer if they feel like their individual freedoms are violated based on what was said about race.
2: And to that degree, like Florida's kind of on the vanguard of this this new conservative movement, uh, I guess. They're less chamber of commerce focused and more culture war focused. And I, I think to some degree, I mean, I, we're seeing that nationally, right? Like there's organizations that are starting to say, woke corporations, woke corporations, we're not going to cater to you anymore. And sort of going away from the Republican Party's roots of being very business friendly. And you're seeing a lot of that in Florida. Um, very recently, uh, Governor DeSantis has gotten in a pretty public fight with Disney, uh, which Disney is a name, you know, for, you know, movies and theme parks, but it's also a political giant in Florida. Uh, it's a huge donor. It's always been very politically Powerful, and DeSantis does not pay any mind to that. Some of the same considerations the past Republican governors have have made, as far as being business friendly and passing policies that a, the business lobby wants, is something that is no longer really his top consideration anymore. In fact, he has sort of vilified those organizations and you know used that to energize his base.
0: So it sounds like DeSantis has moved away from the old Republican Party, as many people in the party have. How have? Floridians responded to all of this.
2: It's been super divisive. Republicans and the Democrats have always not gotten along, but now they hate each other. I mean, even you can see it among the state legislature, there used to be a, a, a sort of a more collegial feel like They would make laws during the day. They'd be on the floor. They'd be in committee, and afterwards, and sort of the you know bars and restaurants around the Capitol, everyone would be hanging out. You don't see that as much, and and that's anecdotal. But I mean, it's covered a bunch of these legislative sessions, and I think it's very real. So I think the agenda has been divisive, but I don't think it's going to hurt him at all politically. It's important to note Governor DeSantis is a strong, strong favorite headed into his 2022 reelection. Honestly, I think most of his team is already looking to 2024 because the Democratic field here isn't all that strong. And these base energizing bills. I don't think are going to hurt him at all. I think they were designed and I think they will effectively make him stronger.
1: Yeah, and I really do think that when you think about Ron DeSantis, you kind of have to acknowledge that he's very strategic, right? He's a really smart guy who knows how to talk to his base, for example, the so-called Don't Say Gay Bill was not even a bill that he personally proposed. This was something that came out out of the legislature. He didn't really talk about it at all. But once it started getting national headlines, once Disney started getting involved, he more than doubled down on that proposal. And he has people around his team that probably are telling him, Whether or not these policies are popular among the base or with voters in general. And so you're not going to see DeSantis embrace something as much if he doesn't think that he can fully embrace it as part of his platform. And I think that's something that we saw with the Don't Say Gay Bill, which is like called officially the parental rights bill. He's framing it as this is a parent's issue, this is a thing that. Parents want, and this is something that we saw during the pandemic when schools were closed. So he's trying to tap into that type of voter, right? You want control over your kid's curriculum. I am your guy. I am your fighter.
0: Looking at a couple different polls, Ron DeSantis' approval rating is somewhere between the low and high 50s, and his disapproval rating is somewhere between the high 30s and low 40s. It seems like Floridians approve of the job that he's doing. 60% of independents approve of the job that he's doing. What should we attribute that popularity to?
2: Well, one, in Florida specifically, the Republican portion of the electorate is growing. Um, The best example, uh, Republicans just recently overtook Democrats and registered voters here. And that's pretty much the first time in modern political history Florida has had more registered Republicans than Democrats. Going back to when President Obama won here in 2008, Democrats had a 700,000 voter registration advantage. So Republicans have overcome a 700,000 vote registration deficit in, you know, gosh, a decade. So Florida is getting much, much redder. So I think naturally some of the policies that Governor DeSantis is putting forward are going to be popular. It really is kind of notable because Rick Scott spent most of his eight years at under 50% and sort of post Tea Party, it's, it's just generally a very anti-incumbent mood. The era of 60% approval ratings don't really exist anymore. So the fact that Governor DeSantis is generally over 50% is, you know, he's been you know one of the more popular governors Florida has seen in well over a decade. And it's a, I, I think it's a signal that the state is, is headed in one direction politically.
1: And I think a lot of that has to do with the pandemic. We're coming out of two years now or yeah, right. It's been two years. Yeah. <laughs> Time doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> uh, we're coming off two years of something that everyone experienced. And in Florida, DeSantis has taken full credit of being a leader and keeping schools open, keeping businesses open, not uh, allowing vaccine passports, he brags about the state being the free state of Florida. And that is something that he is fully embracing as he runs for re-election. That is something that really resonated with a lot of Floridians here. And even now he says that everyone's moving to Florida, right? Because they want to move to a free state. They're sick and tired of the states where they are and their policies. And so what I'm doing is the thing that's bringing everyone back to the sunshine state. So there is definitely a dynamic with the pandemic that has allowed him to really rise uh, in popularity, not just in the state, but across the country.
2: Yeah, that can't be overstated enough. I guess it's, it's a good point. The pandemic, and uh, the way he handled it was rocket fuel for him nationally. Um, you know, there's pictures of him at Bike Week in Daytona Beach holding up a beer that has like sort of become the picture they like to use a lot, talking about the free state of Florida. And that's really what caught him fire nationally with, with Republican conservative types, the people who pay attention to politics, Throughout the year, the pandemic is is what put DeSantis on on the map to to a degree, and I, it's certainly spurring his Trump level sort of popularity with Republicans.
0: Can we talk a little bit about Ron DeSantis's biography and sort of how he formed the political identity that you're describing today?
2: He was uh, a, a sort of born out of the Tea Party. He self published a book poking fun at President Obama. And he was found by a Republican consulting firm going around to local Tea Party meetings selling this book. He sold himself really well, talked about the Constitution and liberties and and sort of the things, you know, again, he speaks to the base really, really well. And this prominent consulting firm in Florida saw him sort of plucked him out of obscurity. Uh, There was during Florida's redistricting process. So there was actually a new congressional map was drawn A new congressional district, excuse me, was drawn where uh, DeSantis lived. He ran for Congress helped found the Freedom Caucus. So he was always a very conservative member, got some Fox News play. Uh, folks like Sheldon Adelson and some large donors really liked DeSantis's brand of conservatism. And from there, those guys helped him get into a position where he could afford to, to run for governor. But he's always been to his party's right and he's sort of been forged from the, you know, c- conservative politics from the get-go. But I think that the his governor deSantis's roots are really sort of in the early Tea Party movement.
1: He was, as Trump likes to call him, a little-known congressman yes, right, yes. Who, who was running for governor. <laughs> so he he started, that's like his biography. And then in 2018, when he decided to run for governor, he was really running against what you would call an establishment Republican, right? Everyone thought this guy named Adam Putnam was going to be the next governor. And then there came in Trump and tweeted, this harbor-trained congressman, and Ron DeSantis is a great guy. You should all support him. And the rest is history. You know, It's um, he was a, a total ally of Trump and he ended up winning.
0: When you say he was sort of born out of the Tea Party movement, I think of potentially people like Ted Cruz, who have actually served at some points as sort of a foil to President Trump as being more conservative, more ideologically driven, more aligned with the evangelical parts of the party, whereas Trump frustrated some of the party's alliances, like you mentioned with the Chamber of Commerce, even early on aspects of the party's evangelical base. So how does Ron DeSantis navigate all of that, being perhaps ideologically very conservative, but seemingly wanting to, to mimic Trump? And he he frustrated some of those ideologies.
2: I honestly don't think he tries to navigate anything. He's the most blunt force politician I've ever covered. I genuinely, to a degree, don't think he makes those sort of calculations. He wakes up in the morning, sort of, you know, sees what the field of the base is and does what he wants. Um, he he isn't as susceptible to sort of finger to the wind politics or, or some of the traditional special interest groups that you're kind of talking about, or, or coalitions might be a better term, some of the coalitions. His perspective... Is if you're a coalition that's historically been with Republicans, you're going to be with my brand of Republicanism or you're the enemy. So I don't know that he necessarily caters to organizations like that. He'll be with them if they're with him. But the moment they turn on him or or come out against policy of his, he has no problem cutting ties. He's he's not known as the, the world's most loyal soldier. I don't know that he... He makes those considerations, which which is I guess sort of novel. I have not seen a major politician operate the way Governor DeSantis does. He doesn't have a huge political team. That's one of the things people note about a potential 2024 run. He doesn't have a big political circle. He doesn't have he looks at polls, but he doesn't have a pollster on hand. He doesn't have a, a, you know, a general consultant. Him and his wife, Casey, who's kind of his top advisor, really just make a decision on what they want to do and do it. And you're either with him or you're not. And if you're not, he doesn't care.
1: And I think we saw that a lot during the legislative session. You know, there was the open feud here with Disney. Traditionally, you know, you don't see Disney getting in the crosshairs of a politician so high profile like Governor Ron DeSantis. And there's also, for example, the immigration proposals that that came out. A bunch of Latino evangelicals started coming out against the proposal because a lot of those faith-based organizations take care of unaccompanied minors, which they felt the policies would be targeting. But at the end of the day, yes, there were like hundreds of evangelicals that came out to the Capitol against the immigration policy. But DeSantis, a few days later, hosted an an event at an evangelical church in Miami-Dade. And he knows who will be with him. And then he just trusts his gut and whatever he knows about what he wants to do and just goes through it.
2: I actually don't think he has one. And what I mean is, A traditional coalition would be, you know, various special interest groups, evangelicals, business groups, certain politicians. He doesn't have close friends, political allies, he's sort of an army of one, and he's really unique in that sense. If there were a coalition, it would be the loudest voices in the party, I suppose, some of the conservative social media influencer types, um, many of whom have now very loudly and famously moved to Florida. Some of them, some of the folks who are are hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers and and YouTuber types have sort of made their personal brand now being Florida people. They moved to Miami, and they'll very loudly talk about how Governor DeSantis' policies drew them there, the free state of Florida that's become you know, a brand amplifier for him. And I would say a collection of YouTubers and Twitter celebrities, if anything, are much closer to a DeSantis coalition than any traditional coalition you would associate with a, a large, prominent politician, because he simply doesn't abide by the traditional political rules. And viewing him through a traditional political lens often sort of falls flat. And I was just going to say, Disney's a good example there, because Disney has decided in this fight, they're going to suspend all political contributions for the time being. DeSantis will be able to raise money. We're already hearing from Republican state lawmakers, people from his own party saying, hey, this is going to cut off a big source of political contributions for us. And the governor doesn't care, doesn't think about those calculations. It's again, it's sort of an army of one.
1: Based on the series of proposals that came out at the legislative session, you can tell that a lot of the concerns that he's responding to, at least with the policy that he personally prioritized. Were groups of parents who are just like, in reality, just local activists who are mobilizing at the local level on school issues that they feel passionate about. And that's what he's tapping into, these local pockets of, they're not all necessarily activists, but it is a coalition of people organizing, most the conservatives, and they are getting in his ear.
0: We've talked a lot about culture war issues, but one of the, the possible appeals of President Trump all the way back in 2016, was basically rejecting some of the least popular policy positions of the Republican Party on economics. So, for example, basically saying, I'm not going to privatize Social Security. I'm going to invest a trillion dollars in infrastructure, which, of course, didn't happen under President Trump, talking about funding public health care, Medicare and things like that. What has DeSantis's approach been to kitchen table politics?
2: there isn't much of a DeSantis doctrine on those issues. He he almost exclusively focuses on some of the issues we've talked about. And coming out of this most recent legislative session is actually a good example. Florida's property insurance market is imploding. It's in really rough shape. The insurance commissioner here uses very dire terms. Lawmakers were unable to agree. The House and the Senate here were unable to agree on any property insurance bills to fix it at the end of session. And it's a very, very big pocketbook issue here. It's, it's a number, probably the top bullet point pocketbook issue in Florida. Governor DeSantis has asked about the legislature's failure to pass a property insurance bill. And it was clear he he just wasn't really prepared to talk about the issue. He didn't address it directly and shifted to Biden and inflation and how everything is becoming more expensive. So I thought that was a good snapshot of the pocketbook issues you're talking about, tax policy, property insurance reform, some of those things that, you know, would traditionally maybe be in a governor's wheelhouse just aren't his main focus.
0: We've been comparing him to Trump because I think that's the natural comparison to make, given that if he does run in 2024... He could potentially be running against the former president, and the former president obviously still has just massive sway over the Republican Party. So looking at an analysis from Bloomberg in 2021, quote, a fifth of the $55 million that DeSantis has raised this year came from hedge fund billionaires, private equity bankers, investment managers, and other finance industry donors. Trump, who got less than 2% of his 2020 re-election funds from Wall Street, has raised the bulk of his $100 million war chest from small donors. We have suggested that Ron DeSantis is also not a chamber of commerce Republican like Trump wasn't either. Is he a populist? What relationship does he have to the grassroots versus maybe a money to leak?
2: I think he's very much a populist. I, the My favorite anecdote about DeSantis is we've been reporting on a magazine profile or something is he sort of gets annoyed by millionaires. He doesn't like talking to millionaires. He thinks they're transactional donor class. But when he's talking to billionaires, that's when he gets excited. And someone used to explain to me sort of the billionaire whisperer, the Sheldon Adelson's of the world he really likes. But between him and billionaires, he has no use for you. And you brought up, I think that analysis I was from 2021, he really has sort of turned on the small dollar donor spigot. He's, he's gotten at this point contributions from all 50 states, a ton of them are really small dollar. His political committee at the state level has to report every month. And in the month of, gosh, I, I forget what month it was, but he filed a 400-page political committee report, which is something I had never seen before. And it was all, it was reams and reams and reams of small dollar donors. So without question, he's still getting six-figure, high five-figure checks from, from folks like you had mentioned. But I do think recently he has started to, to up his small money game and his campaign is, is really putting a focus on that and sort of trying to capitalize on the national brand with grassroots types across the country who do give $20, $25 at a time. And, and those are, are starting to roll in for him in a real and serious way.
1: Yeah. And a lot of the times you see all these fundraising emails come out right after he held a press conference on policy. And that's how he's tapping into the small donors across the country, not just in Florida. I guess you could see the strategy of nationalizing every single issue that he's pushing for, because he's not only trying to implement something here in Florida, he's also trying to get five bucks from someone in California who agrees with his policies so or someone in Texas. And If you look at his contributions on his website, there are a lot of small dollar donations, but there's also a lot of money coming in from billionaires. Like, I believe people who are moving now into Florida as well are now giving him a lot of money.
0: So how do you compare him to Trump? What are the areas of overlap and how is he different?
2: I mean, I I think he's a slightly less charming Donald Trump. I described him earlier as sort of a brute force, and and that's what he is. He speaks to the MAGA voter. There's a ton of overlap. I guess the middle of the Venn diagram between Trump and DeSantis supporters is probably a circle. But they do interact with them slightly differently. I think the comparison is apt. A lot of people make that comparison, and I I don't think that's the wrong way to go. But, But DeSantis doesn't really even pretend to have a sense of humor. That's just really not his thing. He doesn't have... You know, a large friend circle or any, anything remotely regarding what you would see as a, especially in the South, uh, politicians here have, you know, long sometimes been, you know, charming Southern, that's been their vibe. And that is so not Ron DeSantis. So to bluntly put it, a, a less charming Donald Trump might be where I would go with that.
1: Right. I mean, he's, and he's really good at branding, but it is all about combativeness, right? He's almost fueled by like every time he can take a stab at the media, he'll do it. If he doesn't like the framing of a reporter's question, oh, he's not going to answer the question. He's going to attack the reporter for asking it that way. And it's becoming part of his brand. And I think that even though some might not think he's charming, I think it is resonating with the conservative base who like seeing a fighter on TV and in press conferences and fighting for what they think is right. Even if they would have been like, oh, I would have said it another way. They liked the fact that he sent that message in that way or he delivered. There was an example that went viral, I think it was like two weeks ago, where there were some kids behind a podium where he was going to have a press conference that were wearing masks. And he told them to take off the mask. And a lot of people might have agreed with that. But the way that he did it was he was wagging his finger and telling, the, saying it in a tone that struck some people you know, like it rubbed some people the wrong way. And then it all became about the media. How dare the media like criticize DeSantis? Like he was just telling them that they had the option to take off the mask. It's like, well, like if you listen to the video, it was a little bit more combative than that. And some parents were upset about how he was talking to children. So it's all about branding for him and his combativeness is, I think, a little bit different than Trump. Trump was a little bit. Funnier, you know, he can make people see maybe, oh, maybe he's not so harmless. Like he said something that I didn't agree with, but he said it in a funny way
2: the mask incident is actually a really good example of how, the, a, a political trait they very much share in common is find an enemy to find the enemy and relentlessly attack it never back down, never apologize one of the kids' moms who was yelled at and by the governor to take the mask off did an interview with the local television stations, how, saying how upset she was, She said I asked my son to wear it, no one else should do that and rather than doubling down because there was this especially in this parents empowerment moment rather than backing down and saying oh we're sorry we could have handled it differently uh, his press secretary created a meme Making fun of the mother. So there is absolutely sort of a strain that Trump and DeSantis share of never apologize, never back down. Now, I'm, I'm not sure that I think we got a chance to ask him when we were doing a magazine profile if like, you ever would apologize for anything. And I don't recall him coming up with an answer. That is very much a commonality between the two.
0: So I mentioned at the top that ambitious Republicans have to be perhaps even more coy than you normally would be when you have designs on you know, trying to be the nominee of your party because of President Trump. How does Ron DeSantis manage that? And do you have any doubt that he's going to run in 2024?
2: I guess I go back and forth. On and I were both at CPAC, and it's without question from the activists lens, the Republican Party is still very much Donald Trump's. It was Trump everywhere and a, a little bit of DeSantis stuff. Um, so from that perspective, I, I lean towards no, because I, I don't think he can win. But Ron DeSantis, he's having a moment, he has tons of momentum, and he has an incredible sense of self. He's got a big ego, and I think he thinks he can beat Donald Trump. And I don't think there's anyone who can necessarily talk him out of it. He's got an orbit around him, and I don't know to the degree they listen to him. So I guess I go back and forth depending on the day on my certainty of him running in 2024. I think without question, he wants to, he's gearing up for it. He's doing everything he needs to do, but he's got a huge hurdle in his way as of today. And I don't honestly, in this moment, I don't totally know how that is going to play itself out.
1: I think he's being smart and checking all the boxes he needs in case the path opens up for him to run in 2024. But like Matt mentioned, I think there is still this very cemented idea within the Republican Party that Trump is their guy. I mean, one thing that I kept hearing at CPAC, for example, was, oh my gosh, Trump is, we love him and we also love DeSantis, but he's young. Trump is not that young. And if we want him to be president again, this is his time. 2024 is Trump's time. DeSantis can wait in line a little bit longer and we will still love him when he decides to run. So there's definitely a cue that conservatives are very much aware of.
0: You said that DeSantis wants it. How is he differentiating himself from Trump?
2: The best single issue is vaccines. Trump is still has talked about Operation Warp Speed, and he's he's advocated very recently for people to take vaccines. And DeSantis took uh, what was, I guess, seen as a, a slight shot by doubling down on He would cringe at the term anti-vax, but he certainly, all of his rhetoric does not encourage people to get the vaccine. So there is a very big separation between the two of them on that issue. And there's been some personal gripes behind the scenes where the two don't have the best relationship that they used to. But from a policy perspective, I'm I'm not sure that he's necessarily trying to. He's he's doubling down and leaning his shoulder into some of the biggest policy fights that the MAGA Cup really likes. But big picture, I'm not sure he's trying to detach himself from that necessarily.
0: What about the results of the 2020 election? Has he backed Trump up on the idea that the election was fraudulent and that Trump, in fact, won? He's tried to toe the line. He he hasn't
2: said that folks who say the election was stolen are wrong. Trump won here by 3.2 points, which is a landslide in Florida. Florida is a one-point state, so Trump won here. In a big way, so he has done things like you had mentioned at the top. Uh, he pushed to create this elections investigation unit, but he hasn't done things like call for an audit. So he he's tried to toe that line by not saying that that segment of the party is wrong because he wants their support. But he's also hasn't gone full throated like in you know Wisconsin, for instance, where they have a former Supreme Court justice of the state, you know, doing this widespread election audit. None of that's ever been in play here in Florida.
1: I think the voting bill that we saw this year was a great example of how he's towing that line. He created a body to investigate voting irregularities, but like this all came about after he was getting a lot of pressure from conservatives to do an audit and he didn't call for an audit. And so it's, he's definitely towing the line. He's also been asked of whether Pence or Trump are right in terms of how the certification should have gone. And he didn't really want to answer that question. So he tries to stay out of taking sides on that specific issue and so publicly like he's not one to amplify that issue for himself.
0: Wrapping up here, usually when you run for president, you try to get a bunch of different parts of the party to back you up. Donors, different interest groups, different pieces of the broad coalition. You've said that he doesn't pay too much attention. He sort of does what he what he wants. But what is his relationship like with the rest of the party? Does somebody who has no working relationship whatsoever with President Trump, like Mitch McConnell, have an interest in potentially supporting someone like Ron DeSantis in 2024? The answer is, I don't
2: know that the two have intersected enough. So I don't know if Mitch McConnell and Ron DeSantis, where they are personally, but I would say philosophically, there's Mitch McConnell is not a Ron DeSantis Republican. I do think he is going to get some of the biggest donors supporting him, biggest party donors from across the country, writing him checks, simply because they do agree with him philosophically. It's not necessarily that he's catering or pandering to them, but the free state of Florida, the staying open during the pandemic resonates on the conservative end of the party, from the grassroots up to the donor elite, everyone likes that message. And I think the more you talk to people on the far right flank of the party, they're going to support him just because of that. He's not catering or coalition building or trying to do anything that's outside of Ron DeSantis' comfort zone. But because he acted the way he did and there's the liberty, the free state of Florida stuff, that's going to attract money and attention from donor elites and, and party bigwigs. But I, I don't believe that he's the sort of guy that a Mitch McConnell type or a more establishment sort of Republican is really going to get behind unless they have to.
1: And there's also the example of just last year before there was like a break from the law-making session, but. He was traveling all over the country holding fundraisers. So he's not really having any problems finding supporters in other parts of the country. And he was in New Jersey. He was in California. He was raising millions and millions and millions of dollars every month. And if that is not an indication of how he could build his own national coalition based on that alone, I think it's there's definitely signs that even if some members of the party might not totally agree with him, he can definitely pull his weight and raising some money and gaining support at the national level. All
0: right. Well, let's leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me today. Great. Thank you. Of
1: course. Thank you.
0: Enes Abayos is a state government reporter for the Miami Herald, and Matt Dixon is the Bureau Chief of Politico, Florida. My name is Galen Druke. Claire Bidigary-Curtis is on audio editing. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director and Emily Vanusky is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening and we'll see you soon.